This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, our town hall on preserving voting rights and democracy in the United States. We focus on what we can all be doing to join in the fight and be most effective from here in Washington. Joining us are Lisa Ornstein, co-founder of Olympia Indivisible, Charles Douglas III, executive director of Common Power, formerly Common Purpose, an organization that works to foster, support, and amplify a democracy that is just and inclusive, and Cindy Black, executive director of Fixed Democracy First, an organization committed to helping pass pro-democracy legislation locally and nationally. This was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, June 1st. Before we get started, listen, I just want to stress uh, right up front, we're going to be looking at the scope of this problem that we're up against, and I'm just, it, it is my uh, intention to not dwell there. So we're really going to try and focus on action tonight, and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that we come away with this town hall with a sense of agency and some concrete actions that we can take. So... Having said that, I would like to start by uh, just going around the table and talking a little bit about what is at stake right now in terms of what we're fighting for. I think we all see the stakes as quite high, but maybe in different ways. Charles Douglas, uh, I want to start with you. What are the stakes as you see them? Well, I mean, we're seeing our democracy uh, be torn down again and again in different creative ways. I think the stakes are as high as we can all imagine them. Um, I I think that they're generationally significant for young folks because we're showing them um, what can be done to fight this. Uh, We're setting a standard for it right now. And I think that the big aha moment for all of us is that this is not something that we are going to win at any moment. It's a constant struggle. And I think that folks are waking up to that. And if we teach the next generation that, um, they won't be surprised like we were in 2016. Boy, is that resonating with me right now. And we really can't, uh, we can't, we can either take this for granted, nor can we get uh, caught unawares of this situation again. Uh, Cindy Black, fixing democracy is literally in the name of your organization. So how do you see the stakes? Well, um, to echo what Charles said, I think we're at a precipice right now in our country to have to address a lot of things related to democracy. But if we're honest, we've never really had true democracy in this country, not yet anyway. And we're seeing a lot of efforts to undermine that process even further. And I think it's up to the citizenry to get involved and everybody that lives here to participate and eventually trying to get real democracy in this country that really represents the people and um, not moneyed interests, not special interests, but that represent us as a whole. Here, here. Yeah, I, I think we uh, are fighting to still live up to the ideals of our founding document uh, in this country. Uh, Lisa, you are a an inspiration. You are a, a full time activist. Uh, you are a leader in the indivisible group uh, in the indivisible community here in Washington. How do you perceive what's at stake right now? Well, I'm I'm just ditto on what Charles and Cindy have said. Um, this is really a moment of reckoning for our fragile, flawed but extraordinary experiment um, that we call democracy. And it also is both our challenge and our opportunity to realize that, as Charles said, this is not, this is not a, a four-year cycle. This is not uh, a, uh, you know, go to church on Sunday and you're done for the week. We need to find a way 
to build our resiliency and sustainability so that citizen engagement becomes something that is part of being a, a, an American. I love that. Yeah, th- absolutely. It, this kind of engagement is what it means to be American. And we're going to talk about some of the ways that we can increase that engagement uh, tonight. You know, before we go a little bit further uh, down this path of, you know, where we are right now in the situation, I want to address something that I got a couple questions about. People were asking, why freedom to vote? Why did you name it freedom to vote as opposed to say something about voter suppression? And Cindy, you were the one who suggested that we do this. And I know this is something that is very important to you. Why does language matter? Well, if you think about it, the term voter suppression is a phrase that's really not widely understood, Um, especially for conflicted voters. They may be more susceptible to the notion that there are votes we ought to suppress. It's better to identify the dishes more concretely by naming how certain laws erect barriers to voting. Um, I think the freedom to vote is a much stronger framework. It's more relatable, has a greater understanding connection to voters across all demographics. The freedom to vote is about making sure voting options are equally accessible across the country to make sure all voices are heard. It, It shouldn't matter what our race, background, zip code. Most of us believe that democracy to work for us has to include all of us. Absolutely right. And uh, Charles, I see you nodding. Was there something that you wanted to add to that? Well, yeah, I, I'm an I'm an old marketing guy. I come to this, and a lot of folks at, at Common Power come to this from other um, other industries. And so, I mean, my old marketing hat on. You, you call it something that people are going to want to talk about and listen to, and, and folks don't like sad things, and especially now. I mean, we <laughs> especially need hope. now. Yeah. And if we can get hope in it, in the name of something, then gosh darn it, I'm 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 going for it. Well, I will just let people know that that is ultimately where we're trying to drive tonight. Um, We do have a little bumpy terrain to get through. And one of the things that I do want to talk about is uh, some of the fallout from these terrible voter laws that we've seen in Georgia, Florida, Iowa, elsewhere. We don't need to go into the specifics on this, but I do want to talk briefly about how those are playing out. Charles, when you and I were preparing for this, you mentioned that there's a special election in Georgia. It's a, a state legislature race. There are two Democrats running there. This is going to be the first race under the new restrictive voting laws. What are you going to be watching out for in that race? Yeah, the the, the, the biggest thing to, to call out here is, is not how they suppress the vote, but how we overcome it, how we overcome that suppression. And that's going to be the biggest thing to look out for. How are the organizers talking to voters? How are the organized leaders talking to their volunteers? How are we coaching internally and learning to tell better stories around how voters should vote now? Because they're probably afraid. There are so many different ways that volunteers at the, at the, the ground level, voters even, can uh, have some serious jail time. They can, they can be convicted of crazy laws for things like giving people water and food now. So how do we, how do we make sure we take care of our folks that are doing the good work? Um, how do we still do that remotely? Because it's still, folks are still on, kind of on the edge of getting their, their vaccines. Um, and they're writing the book. They're rewriting the book on how to do that now. Now, most of these laws don't come into effect until July 1. But this is good practice for some of the laws that do go in effect, that food and beverage one being one of the main ones that was making headlines. That one goes into effect and they'll be talking through some of the the ins and outs of that during these calls they're making right now. You talked about action. You talked about wanting to talk about action. We're making calls right now into this district. 
Well, you know, I think we're all going to kind of be watching and seeing what sorts of uh, tactics that are, are, you know, being used on the ground uh, by the organizers there. And yeah, it's it's kind of a scary new terrain to have to uh, to negotiate. Um, Cindy, just on a separate topic here, I just want to uh, dive into this very, very briefly. We know this is a redistricting year. I wonder how that might impact things. Yeah, that's probably one of my biggest concerns this year is redistricting, how, how it works across the country. We are, have a bipartisan redistricting commission here in Washington, so we have less of that issue with gerrymandering. But most of the states, the uh, redistricting is run by the state legislature. So whoever is control of the state legislature gets to draw the districts. And if we're already seeing the types of um, bills put forward to restrict voting access. We know that uh, gerrymandering and redistricting is a big issue this year and can have a huge impact for over the next 10 years, because we only do this once every 10 years. So, Lisa, I'm going to bring you into this as well, because you, uh, Olympia Indivisible, has adopted Arizona as a state to focus on, and things are kind of fluid there right now. And I'm wondering if you can just very briefly tell us what the latest is uh, in terms of movements to uh, pass voter suppression laws. A uh, One law has been um, passed in uh Arizona, it, it passed uh, on May 12th along party line uh, vote in the state legislature and the Republican governor signed it. And that will allow them to purge more than 100,000 voters from the permanent early voting list uh, if the voters don't vote once in every two federal elections. Um, and um, at one point there was a single Republican legislator who had voted against the bill, um, but changed her mind uh, sort of last minute and the bill um, passed. Um, now, the to the best of my understanding, this doesn't actually go into effect um, until the 2026 election. Uh, however, uh, what it what it does mean is that we need to be ensuring that voters vote in every electoral cycle. Voting is it's a habit, it's a muscle. Voters who vote, vote. Voters who don't vote, don't vote. So that's part of our mission where Arizona is concerned. Yeah, we're going to come back to that in a big way on Arizona because I know that you have seven uh, action items uh, Olympian Divisible does, and a lot of them are centered around Arizona. Um, you know, uh, Cindy, just kind of coming back to you, I. I want to talk about the For the uh, For the People Act S one and HR four, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and specifically, we don't have to get too into the weeds with it. But I would love for you to talk about some of the fundamental differences between the two of them, just so that people kind of understand as we proceed forward. Because I'm, you know, I'm a little unclear myself. So can you talk a little bit about some of the like what would S one do, and how is that different from HR four? Um, sure. I'll start with the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, H.R. 4. It was H.R. 4 in the last session. We don't know what the number will be this session because it hasn't quite been introduced yet. There's still a lot of hearings and discussions. So basically what the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act would do would be addressed um, the Shelby County versus Holder Supreme Court decision of 2013 that basically gutted preclearance in the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So what that would do basically three main ways. It would modernize the VRA's formula for determining which states and localities have a pattern of discrimination. It would also ensure that last minute voting changes do not adversely affect voters by requiring officials to announce 
their changes at least 180 days before an election. And then the last piece would expand the government's authority to send federal observers to a jurisdiction uh, where there may be substantial risk of discrimination at the polls on election day or during uh, early voting. The For the People Act is a much more comprehensive bill and it covers a lot of things, including election access, uh, integrity, security, campaign finance, um, transparency issues, campaign finance, empowerment like um, uh, matching funds for public funding of elections, uh, campaign oversight redefines how many members on the Federal Election Commission. It also uh, ethics standards and ethics reforms for people in office, especially the president and vice president um, and in the judicial system. But a big part of that with the voting piece is doing things like making it more consistent across all states like for example, requiring all states have online voter registration, automatic voter registration, same day, early access, the ability to vote by mail and all kinds of things. It's a very comprehensive bill. I did give Kat a link uh, from the Brennan Center that has a whole annotated guide to that that can break that down. But there is a lot to that bill. It, we, we, could, we could spend an hour just talking about what that what's in that bill. But the Voting Rights Advancement Act focuses on the Voting Rights Act and strengthening that. And then the For the People Act covers many aspects of voting and campaign finance reform and ethics. Yeah, it's my understanding that S-1 is really quite comprehensive and long. I was watching uh, Heather Cox Richardson, no relation, uh, talk about that today, and she said the same thing, that she could just spend the entire hour just talking about that bill. So Kevin Jones... I do want to add, though, that please. that bill has passed the House, and it is in the Senate right now. It passed the House as HR1. It's in the Senate now as S1. And I just heard last week that it may be up for a floor vote as early as the week of June 21st. So you've anticipated my question, and this actually comes uh, directly from Kevin Jones. He wants to know when, and I'll just read this directly, uh, when do S1 and, and HR4 need to be signed into law in order to protect our freedom to vote during the November 2021 elections and fair legislative districts for the November 20, uh, 2022 election? And as you say, uh, Schumer said that he's going to put uh, put it up for a vote, S-1 up for a vote by sometime in June. What do you think of that timetable? Well, the sooner we do it, the better. There's also a redistricting reform in S-1 that would require independent redistricting commissions, which may be a little late, but there are some things about drawing the maps that could in influence the redistricting period. And we're hoping as soon as possible um, with the... Uh, Actually, I'm sorry to jump in there. Do you know uh, within the, the text of the bill, uh, those independent commissions, when would they go into effect? Would it be in time to impact the 2022 elections? I don't know. That's why as soon as it gets passed, the better. I, I don't necessarily think the independent commissions will kick into the next until the next um, redistricting period, but it may affect the drawing of the maps because most of the redistricting commissions have already begun and started, and so they can't interrupt that process. With the Voting Rights Advancement Act that has not been introduced, I heard it may be introduced as early as next month, um, but sometime early summer, we're hoping, and as fast as we can, because as soon as we get these bills passed, then we can address some of these, um, these bills and laws being put forward that have been adding a lot of restrictions to voting across the board. 
Well, and speaking of that, Charles, uh, you've said that even if these two pieces of legislation pass their federal laws, and a lot would still need to be done at the state level with state elections, statewide elections. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there's a there's a bill out of New Hampshire that is talking about having a, a dual uh, voter registration, uh, one for state elections and one for federal elections. Uh, the kind of insidious part about this is that it doesn't kick in until or unless S1 passes. So it's uh, it's, it's one of those it's it's a contingency uh, thing on their end. And it's a, it's being tried out in New Hampshire. Uh, Texas tried to pass something like this uh, recently. It didn't, it didn't pass. But if it if it passes one state, uh, especially a Republican trifecta state, then it'll just flow around and they'll 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 just copy it. Um, so the, the work to be done locally is always going to be there. Uh, we still have to win these state legislatures. We still got to take over all, all three, if we can, all three branches, um, just to, to roll back some of the stuff that they've, they've put in, put forth just recently. So, um, that's still going to happen and we're still gonna have to get our, our people elected. Yeah. I mean, you're referring to the work that was done under project red map and Cindy, I know you wanted to address that. And so that was the, the project that was done during the Obama years, uh, largely funded by the Koch brothers that, uh, consolidated a lot of power for Republicans at the state legislature level. And one thing I will just say before I, I, I hand this to you, Cindy, is that it seems to me that a fundamental difference right now is that project red map happened below the radar and everything that is happening right now is people are very aware of, of what is happening at the state level. And I, I think that makes a difference. Would you agree, Cindy? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think more people are much more aware of the process of redistricting. And there's been some films out there um, talking about this type of project, the Red Map. And for the people that don't know that, what happened was there was a um, plan to actually elect more Republicans in, in states that um, in jurisdictions that normally, like you said, didn't get a lot of attention. So it was really easy for very, for not that much money to get these people elected so they would be in charge of redrawing the districts. So the goal was to elect as many Republicans as possible in states so they could take over the state legislature to be able to draw, be in charge of drawing the districts. And of course, of course, they're extremely gerrymandered to favor Republicans, regardless of the makeup of the state. I want to welcome our friend Marcy Maxwell just joined us. She is a uh, former 41st LD uh, state rep. Uh, good evening to you, my friend. Um, so, and of course, to pass these two bills, we know that the filibuster is going to need to be eliminated. Uh, there is simply no way to get to 60. Uh, it's going to need to be eliminated or at the very least amended. So here's where we shift into high gear and we start to talk about action steps. So Lisa, I want to start with you and first just kind of lay out some of the great work that uh, Olympia Indivisible well, I'm just going to call you OI from now on because it's a lot of syllables. So just can you lay out what OI has done on voting rights over the last few years? Well, um, I, I put together a list of what we did in, in uh, 2020, just at the federal level, because we also worked at state and county level. But uh, so and we just so everybody knows, we are a team driven organization. We're a very flat model. Uh, we just have these teams with amazing membership and amazing co-leadership and we're small and we're scrappy and our motto is we get stuff done. So we had a team called the ASME field team, Arizona, Michigan field team. Um, we were in 2020, uh, that team um, organized and coordinated a seven day field trip to Phoenix, Arizona with 13 volunteers. We partnered with field team six to register voters on college campuses. 
Um, and we partnered with the Fighting Dems of LD28 to canvas for progressive uh, legislative candidates in LD28, which went on to become the only red Arizona legislative district to flip to blue in 2020. We had a home team for Arizona, Michigan, who coordinated postcard writing to get out the vote in Arizona. Uh, they recruited and distributed postcards to 98 writers who wrote 9,806 postcards encouraging people to sign up for mail-in ballots and to vote. And then we recruited 78 writers who wrote 4,000 campaign support postcards for winning Arizona Senate candidate Mark Kelly. Uh, we distributed uh, the Get Out the Vote writing team, coordinated distribution and delivery of over 2,440 vote forward letters to voters in key states. The steering committee coordinated yard sign distribution and sign waving for Biden-Harris, organized an online fundraising concert which raised $10,000 for Black Voters Matter in Georgia's Get Out the Vote campaign for the Senate runoffs, coordinated development of Protect the Results team uh, to stand ready to defend the electoral results, which I was about to say, fortunately, we didn't have to do, but you know, I'm going to walk that one back. Um, <laughs> we had, uh, I, I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, that's an, I it's incredible. Know. I just, I really just wanted to kind of establish your bona fides uh, with people. You've done so much on this front. I, I will just ask you, because you have now a menu of seven action items that people can take. Um, and many of them are centered around Arizona. I think it's pretty self-evident why you've chosen Arizona to focus on there. It's, it's really sort of the hub of, you know, between uh, Kirsten Cinema, Mark Kelly's election, um, the things that are going on to, you know, at the state legislature level. But I'll just ask you, can anybody, before we start to list these off, can anybody get involved with these actions, even if they're not in OI? Oh, yeah. Um, the only one that um, is like <laughs> proprietorial, if you want to call it that, is um, our action number seven. But it's just basically it's colorama. For all you indivisiblers out there in Winland, you know what I'm talking about. Only we have, instead of it being a one-off, call your senators and we'll make the phones ring all day across the state. Ours is call your senators for 10 days and we're going to provide a script um, that, you know, three different scripts to sort of change it up, keep it fresh, but all on the theme of eliminate the filibuster, you know, use your leadership, use your voice, get this stuff get um, uh, HR1 and S1 passed. Um, all the other ones are um, being done in partnership, including with our, our, our beloved um, partner, um, uh, Common Power. Um, uh, we are, uh, David Domke very graciously made the script and call list to uh, directly call senators um, about uh, these bills. Um, and we've got that up on our website. But yeah, everybody can, you know, go for it. And if there's anything that we can do to help um, that happen, we're happy to do so. Um, we have learned over the last few years that collaboration, building partnerships, working with allies is is it's the secret sauce, especially for, you know, we are small and we are just volunteers. We don't have the the staff or the bandwidth to do the kind of in-depth policy research that Cindy's organization is doing and the kind of incredible outreach to on the ground groups across the nation who are um, powering the pushback against, 
you know, pushback for voting justice um, that um, Common Power does. Yeah. So we really rely on those partnerships and collaborations. Well, you know, I will mention that we're going to have a big data drop at the end of this tonight, and it will include the seven menu items uh, from OI uh, that Lisa is referring to. Um, And Charles, you know, she mentioned that uh, OI is partnering with Common Power uh, to contact U.S. senators across the country to support the For the People Act. Uh, And this is outside of, of, you know, your, your home state. How does this work? Yeah, it's pretty simple. We've got, we've actually got a, a page, commonpower.org slash advocacy. Kat, I did not give you this one. I just realized that. Uh, but it's the, it's the fieldwork tab and the, and the advocacy under there. Uh, but it's got everything you need. It's got the script that Lisa talked about. And it's just a simple one, two, three. Uh, it's got a list of senators, all the emails for all the senators, their phone numbers, if you'd like to call and leave a voicemail. Um, and then for fun, and also because we think this is effective, it's got their Twitter handles and you can tweet at them. Um, and that is something that's fairly new for folks. But once you get started, you're going to love it. I like the tweeting aspect of it. But I, I will just tell you, you know, Indivisible has always told us from the very, very beginning to just focus on your own senators because, you know, they are the ones who need your vote. <laughs> and so you have yeah. leverage with them. Um, talk about the philosophy in contacting senators in other states. Yeah, so we kind of break that rule. In fact, when we come to uh, some events, sometimes we get uh, they, we get a slap on the hand because we tell folks we think different. But here's what I here's here's what we're doing. So there's a couple that we we do follow the rule in one way, and one of them are these great phone banks that we do as a part of the DFAD coalition, where we contact voters, uh, and then of these constituents, are the are the constituents of these senators, we have them patch through live and talk to senators. Um, we also give them the information so that they can do so. So that's one way we follow the rules. Now, we also believe um, there's a saying that says that all politics is local. We believe that all local politics are now national. Mm-hmm. All local politics are now national. What that means to us is that all of you know about the elections that are going on in Texas and Georgia. You know about what's popping over in New, in New Hampshire. I'm seeing head nods and I'm naming these states and people know about these candidates running for office. Um, it, there's a, there's a, a mayoral race in Texas that you should not know about if you're not in Texas, but you know about it because we are all glued in now to your point about redistricting. We all understand these things at some level. And so it does matter. Volume matters from around the country. Twitter would not exist. And it would not exist with all, all the elected officials that put statements out on that platform were it not for the pressure that they get and the influence that they can receive from that platform directly to them. It's not just a single way out. They also get feedback from Twitter, and that's where we give them the pressure. Well, so you mentioned the phone banking, too, and phone banking with somebody on the line, which is really great, uh, from the district. What are some of the other things that Common Power is doing right now to preserve voting rights? Yeah, so we are part of a coalition, the Declaration for American Democracy. Cindy's organization is also a part of that. And we basically send volunteers to all the phone banks that are there. So on our events page, and Kat, I did give you the link to that one. On our events page are phone banks that are going on uh, with DFAD calling for S1, for S4, for anything you can think of that is a national voting rights issue. We are calling with the Declaration for American Democracy for those reasons. And and we are also calling into these states. We were calling into Arizona. Um, 
when that law was being pushed through Texas, we were calling in there, Georgia, when that law was being, was being pushed through it, it went through, but we were calling uh, these voters and saying, please reach out to your elected officials. We keep a week to week, sometimes day to day update on phone banks when they are, and we offer them multiple times a week. We're doing six days a week at some point. Um, but now I think we're down to four and we're going to ramp back up again. Now that the Senate is going to be looking at S1, we're ramping back up pretty hard here after these Texas and Georgia elections. That page will give you an opportunity to plug into anything at any time. You know, when I had the pleasure to speak with David Domke uh, a, a while back, a couple of years ago, when uh, it was still a uh, common purpose, uh, one of the things that they did was they would take uh, volunteers to other states. And so yes. I wonder, is that something now that the, the, the masks are slowly starting to come off? Is that something that uh, maybe in the future for 2022? One hundred percent. Many of you are already planning your vacation. So if you're if people are already thinking about vacations, they're thinking about traveling to do this work. Um, I started with Common Power on day one on March 3rd, 2018, and I led teams to Wisconsin that same year, three trips. I'd never been to Wisconsin. Uh, And from that were the roots, the roots of organizers now that have been organizing for for multiple years. And we desperately want to get back to that. And we're doing it. We're doing it in Virginia. We are traveling to Virginia this fall. The only thing we're trying to think about is if we go twice or three times or four times, and if we also go to Georgia, and if we also go to Texas, we are ready to travel again. It is it is the most impactful way that we can contact local organizations, that we can reinvigorate our volunteer base, uh, and that we can let the folks understand in these states that we we give a damn in states like Washington. Well, you know, you're, you're begging something of a philosophical question that you and I uh, touched on when we were preparing for this, which is, you know, what is the most effective thing that those of us in blue states can be doing in the fight for voting rights, um, you know, for red and purple states? And certainly you're talking about, you know, doing electoral work and things like that. But do, do you have a larger philosophical um, ideal in terms of what our role is here in Washington? I do. I do. Um, and it's it's tough to hear because it's not a quick fix. And I think I said this towards the beginning. The thing that states that are not blue understand about blue states is that we only arrive when we want them to vote. That's what they've heard. You only come when you want to vote and you're not there any other time of year or any other year. If our elections are not making headlines, you folks are not here. So how do we change that? How, how do we change that perception while also changing the paradigm politically in our country? Well, we've got to show up every single year. You've got to show up with your money and you've got to show up with your time because a part of this is building trust in these states. We want them to believe that we care. And so we've got to show up when no one else is showing up and you got to be consistent. And this is the, it, for those of you that have done anti-racism work, this will ring a bell for you because if you're going to show up in black and brown communities, you've got to build trust. They've got to, they've got to unlearn the things as we all do. Uh, to bring each other together. And that's what it takes politically. So that's what we do. That's our philosophy is we're showing up when the news is there, when the cameras are gone, we're still going to show up. And it's not just money, it's time. They want you right there, shoulder to shoulder, making phone calls 
And the minute that it's safe to knock on doors, we will be walking side by side, footstep to footstep with them in their communities. There are so many great organizers who built that model and followed that model. Stacey Abrams, Beto O'Rourke, Ben Wickler, uh, on and on and on. And so, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree uh, with everything that you're saying there. Cindy, I want to talk about some of your actions. So Fixed Democracy First is focusing, uh, one of the things you're focusing on is public education around voting rights. What does that look like? Yeah, uh, we don't, just so people realize, we don't do party or candidate work. We just focus on pro-democracy reform. So we don't do some of the same work that, say, Common Power Indivisible does, but we are aligned definitely with the reform work. So what we do is, is talk to a lot of people about what's out there. What do we need to change to know the history about how we got here? How do we get out of this? How do we what type of reforms can move us forward? All of those things are really important and education and uh, civic outreach is so important. So we do film screenings, panel discussions. I host a weekly democracy happy hour to discuss these issues. We encourage people to don't be afraid to talk to your friends and family about politics. You know, it's not a taboo subject. We should actually be talking. And then we also refer people to organizations like Common Power and the Declaration for American Democracy and other organizations that want to get more involved and make phone calls or write postcards. Unfortunately, we don't have that same capacity, but we work also on implementation. Once a bill has passed, making sure it gets implemented properly through education and people are aware. Like for, for example, in 2018, we passed the um, access to democracy package for automatic same day registration, pre-registration for 16, 17 year olds in the Washington Voting Rights Act. And so we wanna make sure those things get implemented because it's not one thing to just pass a law. You actually have to make sure it gets implemented correctly and you're behind it in making sure it works and that the public is aware that that's available. Well, one of the things that just recently passed in this uh, session was uh, Tara Simmons' bill, which would restore uh, uh, voting rights to, uh, to ex-felons. Um, what are some of the implementation steps on that? Well, we don't call them ex-felons. We call them previously or Thank you. formerly incarcerated persons. Thank you for correcting. For language. Um, we're trying to get away from that word felon um, and see them as people. Mm -hmm. And so this passed this year um, because be prior to this, um, you had to be off community custody. Some states call it parole. We call it community custody here in Washington to be able to get your voting rights back. So this bill would enable everybody that have been formally incarcerated to immediately get their voting rights back when they're released from prison. And so that will uh, uh, take place. It will, um, the first day it goes into effect is January 1st, 22. We wanted it immediately, but there were some fiscal issues with that. So now our goal is we're working with the Washington Voting Rights Restoration Coalition to be able to come up with a plan to educate people because more than 20,000 people um, will get their voting rights back as of January 1st of next year. And we want to make sure they know about that and help them register and learn about the importance of voting and get more civically engaged in their communities. I, I will just kind of open the floor to you because I know that there were a number of other things that, that, that we discussed in preparation. Can you just uh, list off a few of the other things that Fixed Democracy First is doing on behalf of voting rights? Yeah, we, in, in addition to voting rights, like I mentioned, a lot of those bills, we also worked on getting paid postage done a couple of years ago, first with King County and then the state. But we also work on campaign finance, which we think also has a big 
play in democracy. For example, um, disclosure, um, public funding of elections, things like that. We, um, we're right now looking to work with the Washington Bus and other organizations to expand the democracy voucher program statewide. So we're working on that and that's a long-term goal. Um, we also are, helped pass a bill in Seattle last year that uh, any foreign owned corporations, if they had a 1% single owner or 5% combined ownership, foreign ownership, they could no longer donate to Seattle elections. So companies like Amazon can no longer donate to Seattle elections. It doesn't get a lot of press, but it's it's a significant bill that we got passed last year. Wow. And then we also work on alternative voting, ranked choice voting, which uh, we work um, with uh, Washington for Equitable Representation and the Wa Washington Community Alliance and groups like that to enable uh, to get ranked choice voting on the ballot. Uh, Representative uh, Harris Talley had a bill that we worked with her on that. We're hoping to get that reintroduced. And right now we're working to try to get it for King County elections on the ballot this November, actually. So those are some of the things that we're working on. One of the very first times that you and I talked on the podcast was all about RCV. And so we'll, I would love to, uh, to come back and, and, and have you uh, uh, talk about where things stand uh, as, we, uh, as you and uh, the representative put that bill together. Um, so I will just mention uh, everybody watching right now that uh, in a few moments, we're going to uh, take your questions. So if you have questions, don't worry, we're going to circle back because I know that there were some questions about S1 and HR4 and things like that. We will circle back to those. So feel free to put those into the chat and then uh, Kat will pass this on to me. But, you know, Kat, I want to bring you in right now and talk about some of the things that Indivisible has done uh, and also, you know, what's being planned. Um, talk a little bit in the same way that Lisa did about some of the work that, that WIN, the Washington Indivisible Network, has done on, on voting rights thus far. Uh, so far this year, uh, we, in conjunction with many of the groups that are actually on the call, the Indivisible Network has collaborated all together to do several things. We wrote, we added letters to the editor campaign that had 14 letters, uh, all specifically on the filibuster directed at our senators. 14 letters uh, that were published so far. We'll be doing another one of those campaigns, so, so uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, we had a colorama that Lisa alluded to earlier, and what that is is when people sign up uh, for a five-minute period, and they'll all call their, their both senators in Washington D.C. It only takes a couple of minutes. We had a hundred people do that, so we literally took up an entire nine-to-five working day in D.C. for both senators one day. We did that. Um, we also wrote, uh, we all collaborated on producing a letter that 39 different indivisible groups across the state signed. Those groups comprise more than 20,000 people. 20,000 voters um, were represented in these letters that we signed and sent to the senators. So those are just a few of the things that we've done so far this year. Super, super, super impactful. Um, and so let's talk about some stuff that is now happening that people can get involved with. Um, the one thing that's ongoing is called Filibuster Friday. What, what happens with that? On Filibuster Friday, nationwide, people are encouraged to tweet at, call, write, fill in a web form, their elected officials and talk about the filibuster and not just talk about the filibuster and why it needs to die, but talk about the things in their life that aren't gonna be possible if the filibuster doesn't go away. We're not gonna get S1. 
We're not going to get the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. We're not going to get an infrastructure bill. Good heavens, we can't even investigate treason. We can't investigate anarchy at the Capitol. So the idea that um, bipartisanship is somehow going to be possible in this Congress is, is silly. It's fantasy thinking. Um, and we have to get rid of the filibuster if we're actually going to get anything done. Thank you for saying what's been on <laughs> Sorry, my mind. I'm so serious. Not to be a downer. No, no. I mean, it's honestly, it's, and I know I'm not alone in, in having that be so front and center in my mind that, you know, it's, I, I will just say from my perspective, it is, it is alarming to me in the extreme that there are Democrats who value the institution of the Senate more than they value the future of our democracy. And that's end of rant. Um, so another Colorama is happening. Uh, and when, when is that going to be uh, happening? And when can where, where can people participate in that? So we're going to be sending out follow-up information on that. The final planning session for all of the upcoming filibuster actions is actually happening at the end of this week. So we'll stay tuned. You'll get more than one email from us. Um, that is planned for on or about June 18th. So every Friday from here on out, do some kind of a filibuster action. If you're on social media, tag it, hashtag filibuster Friday. Then on June 18th, we'll have a second Colorama. You too can sign up to call both senators. We really do want to kind of make this a habit. And even if you just take on a small activity, um, I think it's just important to just take something on. Um, it, it really, and I will tell you this as somebody who uh, has, has run marathons, um, you, you, you start by running around the block and then you run around the block a couple times. And the next thing you know, you're running doing like 16 miles, 17, 18 miles. So it really does. It's something that really builds on itself here. I don't think I have to tell people who are watching or, or listening. You guys know this inherently. Um, letters to the editor. Oh, my goodness. We have heard so much about this and, and how impactful they have been. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, Kat? Yeah. So we have people who will help you write a letter to the editor. It's We think rather than this time around, rather than focusing purely on get rid of the filibuster, let's talk about the legislation that's not getting passed because of the filibuster. Right. So ask people to pivot and talk about what the infrastructure bill means to you and your family. Talk about what labor rights mean to you and your family and what are they going to do to see that that gets to the president's desk. So that's a new push on the letters to the editor. We're going to be doing that the week after the, the Coloramas. You've kind of seen a trend here. We're building here. Uh, so Filibuster Friday, Colorama, then letters to the editor. Lots of groups are actually having letter writing parties. I know lots of people did uh, postcard writing last year and the year before. And now, in addition to those activities, you can also get together and write your letters to the editor. That's what all the cool kids are doing. That's right. Got to join the cool kids at the cool kids table. And then one last thing. Uh, I understand there are going to be rallies all around the state at both yep. of our senators' offices. Yes, yes. So all of this is going to culminate in the 4th of July week. So July 5th through 8th, we will be coordinating rallies at every Senate office across the state. There's more than a half dozen of them. Um, so there's one within spitting distance, more than likely of 90% of the state. Some people are going to have to drive a little ways for that. And those are not going to necessarily be negative, but they will be an opportunity for earned media. We'll have the press there. This is an opportunity for people to get together and express both their joy at being able to get outside again, but also how important this is to them. 
Um, this has been happening in other states and people are loving it. So again, all of these things are gonna be finalized. So we've got uh, Colorama mid-June, then letters to the editor week after that, week after that, we've got the 4th of July weekend going into rallies at all the offices. And by golly, if by then they don't get the idea that everyone in the state of Washington cares about ending the filibuster, then they're just not listening. Because there's no way they're not going to hear that message. If we take what Fixed Democracy First is doing, and we take what Common Power is doing, and we take what Indivisible is doing, and what DFAT is doing, and Working Families Party, and all of our allies across the spectrum, Washington Poor People's Campaign, Women's March, you name it, we're all working, we're pushing on that door, all in the same direction. By gum, by August recess, they better have heard us. They will have heard us. I, I have confidence. I'm 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 actually feeling uh, giddy inside just listening to you talk. Uh, it's the first time today, I'll tell you that. Um, so listen, I will also mention everybody that uh, there are a ton of ways that you can get involved in the 2022 election uh, because we know that holding the House and Senate are so important and they're going to be a big challenge. Um, that will be the subject of another town hall, though, because you know we've run through so much stuff uh, in these last what uh, 20 minutes that we just don't want people to get overwhelmed. So uh, you know, as Rachel Maddow likes to say, watch this space. Um, let's get into. Some some audience questions. So Susan asks, how much does uh, constituent voter opinion still move Republican legislators or or do they just respond to donors? Charles, any thoughts? I I wish for a day when we can have real political debate. Uh, You're asking what's motivating these folks. I think we all we all know that. Um, the, the biggest thing is, is taking care of our side right now. And I think that the, the great part about where we are in politics today is that I think everyone understands now. I think we all get it. We've got to take care of our side. And when we look back on our side, and we go, okay, so how do we do that? How do we win? We start to do things like, how do we include people who don't normally vote? How do we get candidates out of these, some of these communities? Because maybe that's how you do it. What are the issues that are really impacting poor folks in black and brown communities? And we start to look further out because some of these solutions are not for 2021 or 2022. When we're looking at 2024, 2028 and getting candidates ready for that, where do you pull them from? They are these, these know nothing and no, no name counties in the middle of nowhere in Texas and in Georgia. They're running for school board. They're running for county something or other. Those are the folks we got to pay attention to. And, and starting investing in them right now. That's that's what I would say about that. I, I don't want to explain the crazy. <laughs> no, and, and nor, I don't want you to have to do it either. But Lisa, I see you nodding uh, uh, quite a bit. Is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, I guess the only thing um, I, I I can add to that is um, it it is is it that is the truth of the situation. You know, it's the infrastructure. We got an infrastructure bill <laughs> for Congress, but this is like the grassroots political infrastructure to make the change we want to see. And it's not an overnight thing the same way that, you know, coming in on the electoral cycle and leaving town and there's nothing left is going to do it. Um, you know, and I can even see this locally. We have some races that are really consequential right in Thurston County and getting people to run for them, not easy. Finding money for helping campaigns to organize, you know, not easy. And Charles has got me thinking, well, you know, we need a longer game plan for some of those races so that 
we, you know, instead of being disappointed, geez, why isn't anybody running? Why isn't this great candidates campaign working? We can be coming up with solutions. So yeah, I'm just same as that. Uh, I got one for you, Cindy. Uh, Melvin Mac- Mackey asks, does S1 increase the amount of money needed by third parties from small donations to receive ballot access? If yes, is this an improvement for democracy or is this also a form of reducing more voices? Um, yeah, I know the piece that she's speaking about. Uh, one thing, though, yeah, there is a higher um, threshold that people have to get to be able to uh, run for president, but it opens up for con- money for congressional races for the first time. So, yeah, it may raise the in- it may increase the amount you have to do if if you want to run on a national level for for president. But I think it opens the door for a lot more third parties to get money for congressional races. So, you know, it, it's not ideal. Hey, this is not a perfect bill. I'll just tell you, there's some things in there that should be stronger, some things that should be examined more. But I do like that piece about opening the door to congressional races. And I want to jump on to something both um, Lisa and and Charles were talking about, um, about investing. You talked about investing in candidates. I also think we need to make a big investment in civic education in schools starting Mm. at a very young age. We can't wait to people become voting age to start talking to them about government and their involvement. Um, We're working on a program to target middle school and high school students and new voters. And I think there needs to be a bigger investment in civic education to get people interested and involved at an early age and not wait. I'd I'd love to see civic education starting in preschool myself all the way through. Um, But we got to start somewhere. And I think we need to go after high school students, middle school students, new voters, and get people engaged at an early age. Yes, is what I will say with a big yellow highlighter. Yes. Um, Charles' question for you from Joan Yim. Which Republican legislature and governor states look likely for a flip to blue, uh, like close numbers where winning just a few seats in a state House or Senate can flip it? Yeah, so we, we, this is always a debate on our side, even within our team. We've got seven states of focus that we are, we're laser focused on because we think it's more possible in these states. Um, a few of them fit that bill. North Carolina is one that everyone's excited about. Um, a lot of progress made there pre-2016, and it kind of slid back this cycle. Um, but there's a lot of folks on the ground that are making some real change there and some good, good candidates at the local municipal level that we think are going to rise. So we, we, we feel good about North Carolina. Um, I hesitate on Florida, Florida is such a hard place to look at politics, to look at trends, to hope. Uh, many of us did work on the ground for Andrew Gillum, and that was such a tough, tough race. Um, and you haven't seen a lot of groundswell come back from that, but some good candidates coming out of Florida. So my people are telling me they're hopeful for Florida. I personally am not. Now, personally, I am excited about Texas. I'm excited about Texas and all it stands for. I think it's got a groundswell there from Beto and others that are doing good work. Texas looks a lot like Georgia used to look like. Um, and when you and I talked earlier, Stefan, it was it was about this idea that I'm, I keep thinking of, which is the Stacey Abrams continuum. 
Mm-hmm. And her story talks about the 10 years she gave this PowerPoint slide when she was nobody about it, taking a decade to flip the state and no one believed her. And it took 10 years worth of building relationships and building capacity on the ground and flipping other races for them to finally have the result that we saw uh, this past winter. So Texas on that spectrum is not at year 10, but maybe it's at year eight. Maybe we're, we're closer in Texas and North Carolina. That would be incredibly good news. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I love what you say about Stacey Abrams, and I've been thinking about that an awful lot since we spoke about it, and just that sort of time investment, um, it, it pays off. And, and I love the fact that she really did call it 10 years, and, and, and there it was, and there is just so much to learn from people like her and Beto and others on the ground. Um, one last audience question. Susan McCabe asks, what about federal laws, if we can get them passed that actually help people, can they actually move voters? Do they make the connection? I think what she is asking here is a variation on the question that we hear a lot, which is, can what uh, President Biden is attempting to do, uh, which is to really deliver for uh, working class voters and potentially the Obama Trump voter uh, and, and in continuing to deliver for them, is there a possibility of divorcing them from their politics and bringing them back into the fold? As we know, the working class used to be a, a staple, it used to really be the, the base of the Democratic Party, and it isn't anymore. And I think she's wondering what your opinions are uh, on, on that dynamic. Uh, Cindy, can I start with you? Yeah, I, I think that can definitely help. I think the more people are getting their needs met, I, make, I think that's a much easier way to persuade them. Um, but to talk about kind of what's happening with, with people in the Republican Party and some of the extreme, I think we're going to see a huge split in the Republican Party. It's already starting to happen. Less and less people identify as a, as a Republican. And even as a Democrat, you see way more people in the middle. And so I think there's going to be a real shift. I think there might be some more third party developments. Um, so it, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with the party formations over time and how that affects people. Unfortunately, there's a, so much misinformation out there that I think, you know, we, we didn't talk at all about media, but investing in independent media is really vital to get accurate information out there. You know, all small town newspapers have pretty much folded. I mean, people used to get more um, unbiased information, and they're just not getting that. And I think we need to also invest in our media and um, independent media in, in particular in small towns. I will just mention in closing, we're about we're just up against the clock here. We have a list of actions of everything that we talked about uh, and more in our show notes. Uh, and I mentioned that Kat was going to have a, a mega document for you. So there are a number of ways you can get it. You can go to the Washington Indivisible Network Facebook page to get the info. You can also sign up for the Take Action Network and you get these action items in your email inbox and you can curate them as you like. And then, of course, we're going to be sending everybody an email who left their email address uh, when you signed up for tonight's program uh, with all of these Action. So, listen, um, I, I I actually went back and forth as to how I wanted to close this. And I think I want to close it here as, as a final word, because this is a challenging time, because so many people are really struggling. I want to ask each of you, what is giving you hope right now? Cindy, can we start with you? What gives me hope is that we, we're having way more discussions like this across the board. And I think the more people get involved, we have a chance. I think there's a real movement happening to create a democracy that really is truly representative. And that really gives me hope. Lisa? 
I think it's what what have I what I've experienced over the last four years as just a, a, a citizen activist is that in an era where there was an immense amount of distrust and despair, I learned more about trust and hope. And I really believe that this kind of networking of grassroots democracy is steadying, it's hope engendering, and it's impactful. Charles, you get the last word, my friend. What gives me hope are young people. And I, I, it's funny I'm saying that. I'm almost 40 here. But, uh, you know, if you look at our website on our about page, we've got a staff of 13 or 14 people. And most of them are in their 20s. Um, I think the youngest is 22, 21 years old, something like that. And they're, fl- they're full-time paid staff. And we pay them Seattle wages. We pay them a 401k. And we pay them full health benefits. And I say that not to brag, but to say that if we are going to build progressive infrastructure, if we're going to change things for years to come, that's what investment looks like. It takes money and it takes trust and faith in black and brown young folks and the folks that have been on the margins of voting. You've got to bring them in and help them design the solutions for their future. That is what Stacey Abrams tells us. That is what this T-shirt I'm wearing reminds me. This is a a Black Panther T-shirt. I'm a I'm I'm uh, I was raised by a Black Panther. I'm from Tacoma. That's where I was born on Hilltop during the 80s and 90s. And I remember where I came from, and I remember the struggle in this fight. And it takes years. And it takes years. It takes a lot of sad days and a lot of happy ones. I just saw on uh, on my phone that Deb Holland's seat was probably won by a Democrat. And those small wins are things that keep us going. And the things and the worst times that keep us going are each other. It's all the people on this Zoom. It's the people that are going to go to the senator's offices soon with Indivisible. It's the people who are going to join our phone banks. It's each other. Community keeps us together and faith and investment in young people pushes us further. What perfect words to end on. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, thank you all for that. Honestly, I, I, I needed to hear those words. And I was also, before we uh, started the program tonight, I read that uh, the president has appointed Vice President Harris to lead the fight on saving voting rights. So that gives me a little bit of hope. Um, so as I say, Cat uh, will have uh, information for everybody. Uh, I just want to say, uh, Lisa Ornstein, thank you so much, my friend. That's a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy Black. Thank you for having me. And Charles Douglas III, thank you so much. I'll be back. You you better be. Yes. Okay, I'm going to hold you to that. Special thanks to Robin Gittleman, Louise Pathé, and Kevin Jones. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. If you'd like to get in touch, our email is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.